Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Erdana Azban, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masak Sachim, daf Lamed Dalet. So I just want to do a quick who's who here. Um, and there's a very interesting little tidbit at the beginning of the daf. Right? Where was Rav Ashi's explanation said? It's interesting that they want to give it a location. So they said that this, what was said about Rabbi Afin Baracha in the name of Rabbi Yitzchak, Abba Sha'ul, Gabal Shalbet Rabbi Haya. So Abba Sha'ul was the kneader of the dough in the house of Rabbi. And they would heat water for him with fire that was basically lit by wheat kernels of truma that were tummy. But then he would be kneading with that. So in other words, uh, tahor dough. So you have tahor dough, right, being kneaded, right? But it's cooking on uh, tummy, you know, fire that's lit by something that is actually a tummy. Am I? Why were they allowed to do this? Right? So takala. So maybe we would be concerned, right, that if they burn these kernels, you know, even though they were burning these kernels ahead of time, maybe they might accidentally eat them. And again, this is a continuation of our discussion on the daf before, that if you have these sort of tame uh, truma items, maybe someone would accidentally come to eat them. Um, Ravashi, Ravashi said, Bishligata umi asta, right? No, first the kernels were boiled and then they were made disgusting. So there was no way that anybody uh, would actually eat them. Now, just this little thing, though, about who Abba Shaul was and that the fact that he was the kneader in uh, Rebbe's uh, house. Um, so this is actually a very interesting daf because whenever we see Rebbe, we always think that it's Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi. But if you actually look where Abba Shaul appears, he's really more in the time of the, of the fourth generation of the Tanaim. Um, it's interesting that he's not referred to as rabbi. And there's some other biographical information, which we'll see elsewhere in the Gemara, that he may not have actually have been uh, a, uh, a rabbi. He, he was actually a grave digger, possibly. Um, but he's often mentioned within the Machlokas of Rabbi Akiva and Ben Azai. Um, and so therefore, a lot of people think that he may actually have been a student of Rabbi Akiva. And therefore, the Rebbe who's referred to here is not actually Rabbi Huda Nasi, who really is a further generation down, um, but is Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel II. So I just thought it was good to know who Abba Shaul was. This is one of those really interesting pieces of biographical information that we get floating around on some of these dapim that you totally could skip over. And a great example where like, yes, normally when we see Rebbe, we think it's Rebbe, um, but here, you know, it may not actually be the case. So I, I just wanted to mention that here. Oh, well, thank you for that. I, I feel like I always care about paying attention to the historical context and also sometimes skip over such, such details, um, in part because I don't have all of it at my fingertips. I have the generations at my fingertips, but not this kind of, you know, that fine tuning that you have, which I really appreciate. Right. And the other thing to know about him is, is that he um, he's very associated with a lot of um, uh, Tanaitic statements that have to do with how things actually worked in the Beit Hamidash, which I think is also interesting about him. Like he wanted yeah. to know how things worked there. Anyhow. OK, now back to our actual discussion. Um, so I'm going to sort of set up the next, you know, what Anne and I both thought was the most interesting sort of meat of the daf here. Um, and the section right afterwards 
is going to get into um, a very long discussion, an amoraic discussion about truma that becomes tame. And it sets up the argument uh, this way. So Abaya Bar'avin and Rabbi Hanina Bar'avin were studying the, they were studying Trumos, right? Which we know is one of the Masech Tod of Mishnah in the, uh, in the Academy of Rabbah. So Rabbi Bar'matna finds them, Amr Lehu, and he says to them, my Amritu B'Trumot Devemar. So he says, what did you learn about this, you know, about Trumot in, you know, the, in the yeshiva of the master? In other words, this was, he's basically saying, this is a difficult, uh, you know, Masachad. You're learning in a very illustrious place. What is it that you learned? Amr Lehu, they, Amr Le, they said to him, Umay Kashalach, what is it that you find difficult about this, <laughs> right? In other words, what's difficult for you about this Masachad? Amr Lehu, he says the following, Tanan. This Mishnah. So he's there's a particular Mishnah that he's not sure exactly how to understand. Um, so a truma plant that becomes tame and then somebody replants it. Tame, are they tahor, right? With you know, in terms of making other things, uh, in other words, in terms of making other things uh tame. But you are not allowed to eat them. So in other words, what they're saying is, is that basically once it takes root, right, the plant sort of loses its status, right, as it's no longer food. Um, and it sort of loses its previous tuma status. But they're still asur to actually eat. Right? So then his question is, based on this... Uh, Mishnah, right? But if these plants are tahor, amai asurimi Why is it that they cannot be eaten? And so, you know, very, very, so to me, what was interesting about this Mishnah, which I think is just an existentially interesting question is, which is when you have a plant that has the status of tuma, what happens to like a seed or a seedling or part of the plant that you replant, right? Does somehow planting or regrowth, does it have it lose it's Tuma status. And I'm thinking about this in contrast to yesterday's daf, right? Where that line of Rav Chista, where he kept saying like, well, what happens to the Tuma when you squeeze out the juice of the fruit, right? And I said I was on team Rav Chista, that that made a lot of sense to me. But this question is like different, right? Because it's not that there's something that's like in the plant itself that's Tuma. You're, you're totally regrowing it, right? What comes out, what sprouts is new. But yet this Mishnah is saying, that it's asur to eat, right? It somehow loses a piece of its tummy status, but it's now asur um, to eat. And so the question the Gemara is now going to get into, and now I'll hand it off to you, Anne, um, is, you know, what's the asurin? Who is it? Is it is the asurin referring to the first possibility that they're going to go through is that the asurin is actually referring to uh, zarin, to, to non-kohanim? Because in other words, what it's saying is, is that maybe it actually retains part of its truma status, that ultimately is going to be rejected, and they're going to go to a different uh, understanding of that, which now Anne is going to go through. Yeah, I find the whole thing, I find the whole question of it very interesting, because, again, my intuitive sense, which uh, we are not, nobody should pass it by anybody's intuitive sense, right? But I would think that, I could, I guess I could see it either way, right? The fact that the plant, um, 
like if you take the seed, the pit of an avocado and you go and you plant it, right? Is that the same plant as the original avocado that you have or is it really a whole new thing? And I think that there's something that we kind of, as I say, intuitively sense about seeds and growth and the the whole new plant there that we would think, I would think maybe, that it's a whole new thing. So then when they've got this question on that, that you're not allowed to, you're allowed to plant it, but you're not allowed to then use it, it feels like, wait, so you don't think it's a whole new thing? And then I feel like they're going to have to keep track of every plant, every, you know, every, I don't know what, every grain, not grain, every seed and every sapling and every, like throughout to make sure that nothing ends up, you know, being used after it's not supposed to be used. And this, of course, is exactly what the Gemara goes on to talk about. Amrile, they say the Rav Matana, um, Did you ever hear about this? And so he says, This is Rav Shesha's position. He says, because they have been, uh, Ifsu has been disqualified for them, it's prohibited to Kohanim because it's been disqualified for them because of Hesachadat. Now, Hesachadat literally means, uh, I don't know if I know what it literally means. It means removing your mind, right? Where you are no longer paying attention to the thing that you were paying attention I to. I would call it, a la- would say- it's like a lapse of attention. Okay. You know, like, I, like, you know, that's, a, that's how I would think of it, like a lapse of attention. Okay. Also, I feel like very often we're talking about a shift of focus. So I would say that the time that the, the, the way this comes up most commonly, at least in my life, is that after Nitila Yadaim and before eating bread, right, you're supposed to go from one to the next, right? And there's supposed to be no Hesachadat. You're supposed to have no, again, removing of your mind, no shift of focus, no lapse of attention between, you know, the fact that you have washed your hands and now you're in preparation to eat bread and now you're going to go eat the bread. So the concern here is exactly this. This hesachadat is in terms of paying a, a constant attention to the the um, to the plantings, to anything that you're going to plant that had been truma that was used or designated for truma. They're truma saplings. They're now treated that they've become impure because. And then what happens is you plant them, but in the meantime, of course, the kohen has you know moved on to other things. He's diverted his attention from them, and but they still end up being prohibited to him even after the next tree grows from them. So the Gemara goes on. So this makes sense, the Gemara says, according to the position that says this same phenomenon fundamentally disqualifies whatever, whatever it's near, right? It's an inherent disqualification. That makes sense. Right? If you're going to say that the moment you remove your attention, the moment you have a lapse of attention, then whatever you would have been paying attention to is going to remain up, prohibited to you, well, then that's part and parcel of the same thing. But for those who say that that um, lapse of attention is simply a disqualification because you're concerned about tuma, and it's not fundamental, it's not essential in the way of the other view, well, then what? what's what's the problem here? Because theoretically, right, this is what the mission of Yerdin that you've just read, theoretically that by planting the saplings again, right, meaning fresh, they should be rendered pure. Meaning even if they had been impure, now that you're planting them, that should kind of give them a whole new identity. So 
the question of to what extent the Kohanim need to kind of have a constant attention on the thing that had been designated Tame and is now going to be planted um, is an, I think it's a very interesting question because it also speaks to, you know, what is the role of the Kohen in, in even in his own crops or even in the crops, I guess, of the food that is supposed to come to them. Remember that for the most part, uh, the, I, the food items that come, the truma that comes from any kind of produce, any kind of vegetation is in the hands of everybody else and they bring it as gifts to the Kohen. So the fact that he has to pay attention to these saplings, I think, is very interesting. I have one more little bit here. The the Itamar Hesachadat, Rabbi Yochanan Amar, Psul Tumahaveh, Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, Omer Psul Hagufaveh. And now we have names to give to these two positions where Rabbi Yochanan says that it is simply a matter of Tuma, that that's the concern, that lest the sapling become Tame or become more Tame while uh, the Kohen's attention was elsewhere. And Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, also known as Rish Lakish, he says, no, 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 it's, it's an inherent disqualification. The moment you have his Zachadat, you have somehow rendered that sapling unfit um, and, and therefore prohibited. Um, so then, you know, this goes on. There's a, there's a much uh, longer discussion here about it. Yudin, I think you were correct in saying that this is really the bulk of the daf. Uh, so I just want to jump to well, before I do, I just if you have anything to comment on this. Before I, I look, I think this is a halachic concept. We'll see it again. Um, but it, you know, but it makes sense that it's introduced here with Kohanim, right? Like, I think one thing that we're really getting with all of our discussion about Truma is there was really a sort of special attention that the Kohanim really paid to paid to the things around them, right? They were really sensitive about Tuma and Tara. So I think you know, them being distracted or sort of having a lapse or, you know, a plant was tummy, so they just, they didn't have to watch it. You know, sort of like a side, almost is easier for them. This concept of hesachadas makes a lot of sense. And I wonder how it sort of fits into, you know, a little bit like some of our discussion where like mitzvot srichot kavana, right? Like you have to have intention. This is different than that. Um, but it's always interesting to see when there's, sort of halachic concepts that are based around thought and not action. Uh, yes, I agree with that. A whole Although one could say there's uh, an action here, you know, because it's the action of watching the, the plant. But I do think it's, it's, it's something about thought. Yeah, I think your first characterization, your first characterization sits better with me because the planting has taken care of it, right? And then the attention that you're paying, I would say, is perhaps not an action, and in fact, it might be quite difficult, right, to to retain your to keep paying attention all that time, all that time, meaning what until harvest, right? And the implication here is, of course, they can't do that, right? That's why hesachadat is a relevant concept here. You know, it wouldn't be brought in if it was something that they could say, okay, so as long as you just sit and pay attention to it, you're good to go. Then there wouldn't be a concern, right? Instead, not only is there a concern, there's a prohibition. So I, you know, I think it's quite clear that there's a presumption that they're not going right, to keep exactly. it. So I, again, I think just an overall theme to pay attention to is, you know, these types of halakhic concepts that deal with thought. So, you know, again, another, another, another source for, okay, PhD, so, as I always like to say. Or food <laughs> for thought. Um, on Amadet, on, on there's just this one little line that I want to make mention of just because, um, 
it seems that it is my place to pay attention to all of the insults between Chazal. Um, uh, so what happens? We've got this again back and forth between Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish, and and then at a certain point, Kisalik Rabin um, Ravin goes to Eretz Israel. He leaves Bavel. He goes up to Eretz Israel. Amra Rabbi Yirmiya. He stands. He's in the learn in the yeshiva there near Rav Yirmiya, and he says this halacha, right? This that he had heard before. Again, all this discussion about. Again, it, it goes much further afield in terms of sprinkling the br- blood of different korbanot, and again, continuing with the tumentara. Now, remember, tumentara is not in play in terms of outside of the koanim and and tumat mate, right? They're really learning something that is not their day to day life, not in Bavel and not in Eretz Yisrael. So, what happens? Rabin goes to Eretz Yisrael. He teaches this halacha that he had learned previously before Rav Yirmiya, but Amar. So, uh, meaning again, this is a statement of Rav Sheshet, right? Uh, that he's teaching before Rav Yirmiya. And Rav Yirmiya says, Bavlai Tipshai, you foolish Babylonians. Mishum de Yadve Ba'ar de Chashucha, Amritun Shmaita de Machashu. Because you dwell in a dark land, you're saying dark halacha, right? Meaning cloudy, unclear. Lo Shmailachu. Didn't you ever hear the statement of Rachel Lakish in the name of Rav Ushaya? Now, of course, it's interesting. He's quoting Rachel Lakish because that's what we've been paying attention to all the rest of the daf. And what is that statement? Rachel Lakish said in the name of Rav Ushaya that when you have water, now water is specifically used for the Nisul Chamaim, the water libations that happens to Olam Sukkot, it says if that, if you pour it out and then the water became impure, then that's, then, one second, Hishikan Dishan, if it was poured out and then it was consecrated, then it's going to be Tahor, Hikdishan, if it was consecrated, Vacharkach Hishikan, and then you poured it out, that would be considered ritually impure, meaning the presumption of Rav Sheshit's statement that you read doesn't sit well with Rav Yirmiya because we've got a contradiction here to this statement. So, again, the halacha here is obviously the most important part in terms of the Gemara's attention. But I am always taken by the the dynamic between the Chachamim who lived in Eretz Yisrael and the Chachamim who live in Bavel. And there really is a diaspora Eretz Yisrael divide not so far and perhaps from what we have today. And this idea that that somebody in Eretz Israel would, would insult the Babylonians and say, you foolish Babylonians, you live in a dark land. Uh, Bavel is not known for, you know, dark. There's culture, there's there's science. You know, it's it's a really interesting uh, yeah. dig. Well, at, well, look, at, at the end of the, the day, we say, Kimitzion Torah. So I, I understand the position, why that exists. Um, but it's but it's always interesting to see those little, <laughs> you know, little insults that that crop up here. Um, I just want to close out with one quick thing because we're not going to get into it today just for the sake of time. Um, but the final piece of the DAF just has another interesting discussion, which is basically trying to tease out if things that are other types of kodshim that are that are kadosh in different ways. And it starts off with a discussion about, you know, the 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 water over Sukkot that was used for Nisuch HaMayim, 
right, that was done with the Simchas Pesach Shoeva and that, that whole ceremony, um, if it has additional sort of stringencies to it, right? Do we, are we even stricter with it um, than let's say other, you know, other types of things um, when it comes to Tumantara and other areas? So I thought that was just a whole other discussion. I'm sorry, we don't have a, a full amount of, uh, of time for it. Um, but uh, just to pay attention to it when you go through the stuff. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Uh, let you let us know what you think about planting and Tuma and Tara and insults that go between the diaspora and Eretz Yisrael and back again. Uh, until tomorrow, go and learn. 